Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. everyone welcome back to that anthro podcast today we have tara with us i'm so excited she's a listener of the podcast which is obviously as exciting i mean i'm happy to have any guest on but i feel like it's different when it's someone who you know really is a fan and respects you know the work i'm doing and um i'm really excited to have you so welcome thank you thank you very much for having me and i'm excited to be here as well yeah So we were just talking before we hopped on recording about your move. You just moved. Um, You're about to start your master's. Tell us a bit about where you moved to and um, what you're going to be doing your master's in. Okay, so I moved from Cambridge to London because I recently just graduated from Cambridge. Um, I did a degree in history of art and I moved to London to do my master's in Mediterranean archaeology which I'm very much looking forward to. So it's a year-long course um, and it's a very, very wide curriculum. So you could look at anything from like Egypt, you could go to Cyprus, like the Baltic Sea. It really has a lot of like scope geographically of what you want to do as well as time periods. But um, my interest is Anatolian archaeology. So that's Turkey uh, slash Syria kind of on that like Turkish Syrian border but yeah yeah that's that's what I did so I'm in a two-year master's program and given how quickly paced a two-year master's program in my brain kind mm. of hurts thinking about a one year do most people not collect their data in the field is that how they do it so there's no um there's no field work in okay. this one year master's so it's very much theoretical and also because I did a history of art degree I need that kind of like um, theoretical base before I can do a lot of um, like self-directed or co-directed field work. So at this point in my kind of like um, educational trajectory, the years masters probably would fit me better than like a two years uh, masters where I'd be doing more field work. So yeah, that's why I kind of went for that. But um, also at UCL, they encourage you to kind of do your fieldwork like in the summer beforehand so I recently came back from Greece so that was the the like it, practical experience that I was encouraged to get alongside alongside the masters yeah awesome. that's great that they actually encourage that um mm. I'm kind of currently in that phase of like well if I'm gonna collect data in the field I'm gonna have to do it this next summer and there are just a lot of factors that I wouldn't say I'm not saying like I'm not going to just like it's going to be a lot of planning and so I'm kind of moving towards being like it might just be easier to not do field work for that and then maybe try to find like some sort of project that I could be um like a supervisor or like a teacher at a field school like Mm. after my master's um because yeah yeah I like field work but I'm also not like in love with it to the point where I'm going to be heartbroken (laughs) if I don't get to go (laughs) dig in the dirt like you know do you know what it's really it's quite nice to hear people say that because 
I like material culture and I, I like studying things that have already been found. So I'm a complete like museum enthusiast. So, yes, you know, as much as I love getting my hands dirty and I absolutely loved being in Greece on the dig, I thought it was the most fantastic experience. My interest is kind of sitting down with that object that has just been found and really, really looking at it and studying it and like kind of comparing it to primary like sources and books and papers and you know so that's that's kind of my relationship with fieldwork which sounds similar to yours as well maybe yeah Yeah. no for sure um I think it's great to do I've done a field school I've done some other um I guess I've really just done a field school um but my brain's like what else have we done um (laughs) But yeah, I just, I think it's great to have the experience, but then not necessarily, it's not everything you have to do. I originally uh, was looking for like um, a field school or an excavation in Turkey, because that's the kind of direction that I see my my career going in. Uh, That's where I want to get the experience. I probably know a lot more about uh, Anatolian archaeology than I do uh, like Greek, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the two are very connected, but Mm-hmm. Again, there's a lot of like there's so much diversity between yeah. them, and it's very difficult to like uh, transfer your skills because you know they're nuanced. Um, so I was looking for uh, work in Turkey. It's really difficult to get on an excavation in Turkey at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's quite political. I won't go into mm-hmm. it too much, but um, pretty much, I think your best bet is being your best bet as someone that doesn't have a Turkish passport uh, trying to get on a Turkish excavation is um, being at a Turkish university. So you need to kind of know the supervisors, you need to know the lecturers that are going to, you know, um, introduce you to these these, uh, field schools. So... I said, okay, I'm not going to pay myself. I will option, you know, it's close. It's, I know I just spoke about the differences, but there are some similarities. So I looked on the um, Hellenistic Educational Research Institute um, in Peloponnese and they had two schools working. They did the um, ancient Sparta and ancient Messene. And I applied Um, And I got on it. I was really, really happy. Um, It was only two weeks, which is actually very short, I think. But yeah, so I ended up getting on the the ancient Messine dig, which I was very happy about. But yeah, and then and then I and then I went in July. It was absolutely fantastic. Like the best. Yeah, really, really great. Um, In kind of geographically in Greece, specifically uh, co- uh, north south coastal inland um so it's near Kalamata so it's coastal we're looking in like the Peloponnesian region um which I think is south but mm-hmm. we were like an hour away from Kalamata in a taxi but in this really tiny little village which was actually like the professor that we were working under it was such a um like community feel he managed to get everyone in the community involved some way in this excavation and like you know kind of created this really fantastic economy off of it as well yeah which I just thought was so fantastic you kind of told me that it, it's an acropolis and you were working in trenches so specifically yes. a I don't think we've ever talked about this like what the process of digging a trench is it's not the most exciting mm. thing but for anyone that doesn't know we can kind of just like go basics of like what you were doing there yeah 
Yeah, of course, definitely. So we were working in the Agora of the um, Acropolis, which is kind of like the, the could you call it a marketplace? They kept yeah. calling it a marketplace, like an ancient yeah. marketplace. I think it was very kind of varied, but like if we're going to put it in modern terms, that would mm-hmm. make a lot of sense, yeah. especially for what we found as well, which I'll get onto later, which was really exciting. Oh, yeah. But um, So we were working in three trenches, uh, trench A, B and C. I think it's quite funny when you have multiple trenches, it fosters a lot of competition between the people that are working in the different trenches. I don't know if you've experienced that. People get so competitive. <laughs> That's funny. No, because I haven't, I've only excavated graves and there was like three of us working, well, three to four of us each working on one grave. But no, I can imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, it really does. It gets very competitive. Um, so before we got there, they marked out the trenches and where we were going to be digging. And um, first we had to do context sheets. So we had to... Um, kind of note out anything that was already in the like uh, demarcated trench. Um, a lot of it was in Greek as well. So we had to brush up on that. Very difficult, uh, but good, a good skill. Um, so we had to do our context sheets uh, every single morning. So pretty much like for listeners, if they haven't done this kind of thing before, um, when you're digging in a trench, every time you reach a new context, it means every time you reach a different kind of earth or perhaps a new layer you find or you find a particular object that's still in the ground that you really need to um, you need to note down because it could mean that it had a different function to the layer before. So, um, for example, we uh, had a very kind of like dusty, dry earth on the top. And when we went down a little bit, like a couple of inches, it started to be a bit more of a kind of a moister, darker. So we had to do a new context. Um, so to kind of like open up our trench, we really went ham with a pickaxe, which I think sends chills down my spine because I could see like pottery just being broken left, right and centre. But yeah, I know. It's I also know. a it's, workout because they're heavy oh my gosh it really is and like you feel like you've been to the gym after because you have these like calluses on your hands and your arms ache and yeah yeah, so we really went in with the pickaxe first of all um to just get that first layer off and then you start to reach uh a different contacts and also things that you probably don't want to break so um Mm -hmm. we started to reach a bit more uh marble as well where there were walls, we started to find uh, pottery, which was in uh, tact as well, because on the top uh, on the top layer, a lot of it had already been kind of uh, broken mm-hmm. by the um, machines, like the JCBs that they had to get in beforehand yeah. to even like reveal the trench. Um, so when we kind of reached this second layer, that's when we started going in with brushes and trowels and I think a lot of the work at that point is really defining what you can already see there. So, you know, if we profiling, profiling, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, for example, we had a wall that was running uh, like horizontally through our trench, and it's crazy because we had no idea before we got like like I don't know four inches beneath the ground, and they were like, "Oh wow, it's a wall! That's incredible!" So. A lot of the time it was hands and knees, um, picking out the pottery, putting it in in separate bags. That's another important thing. Always putting the pottery in a bag that 
corresponds to the right trench otherwise you've got a big old mess <laughs> mm, yeah. um we had a lot of work going on inside the trenches uh but also we had cleaning pottery on the side which was hot actually I forgot to mention how hot this all was uh it was absolutely <laughs> boiling it was yeah. probably like high 30s like degrees celsius mm-hmm. right i'm not sure what that is in fahrenheit but... it's between 90 and 100 which is very hot and i did my yes. school in spain during july too so girl i feel oh, you wow. on a spiritual level <laughs> yeah it really i got a lovely tan but mm-hmm. my gosh it was absolutely boiling mm-hmm. um but once again she didn't complain it, it felt like a holiday at times which was really nice um yeah. but yeah so it was so hot there but we would um, also kind of have breaks from digging the trench where we would go and do the pottery, clean it. It was so exciting, like seeing what, you know, once you scrape away that mud, what you find underneath. Um, we found a coin. We're still not sure what oh. age it is because they haven't. Um, I know. I can see your face. You can't see so mine, exciting. but I can see yours. And I know it was so exciting. We think so. The professor, Professor uh, Petros Demelis, He's been running the um, ancient Messenian site for like 40, 50 years. So he really loves and knows it inside and out. Um, and he came down to see it like because it was a special occasion kind of, you know, we found a coin. Yeah, no, that's a big deal. It really is. Yeah, it's it really, really is a big deal. It's not every day that you find a coin. Um, no, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions of archaeology fieldwork yes. is people really just think that we're pulling gold and coins uh-huh. and all this stuff out of the ground. First of all, you have to remember that there were centuries of looters that if they knew where <laughs> yeah, a site exactly. was, would loot a site. And yep. You know, especially when you're tr- digging a trench, you didn't even know there's a wall there. The probability exactly. that you would find a coin is so low. So it's incredibly cool that you did find one. Yeah, we found, um, I, I'll tell you some of the things that we found uh, just, you know, while we're on the yeah. topic. So we found a coin. We found a um, an olive press, like a marble olive press that was completely intact. That was probably so one of the cool. most fantastic things. Yeah. And it even had the um, the dip in the side of the press where the oil would run out. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, we didn't remove the whole thing because we weren't there long enough. But, you know, we saw the top. Yeah. We also found uh, two glass beads that were like perfectly, so yeah, like perfectly rendered. We um, we found loom weights as well, um, which we think were used like in the marketplace, like people weaving. Also, it could have been uh, like a domestic, um, like, you know, you like to think of a kind of domestic business or a family business that take it to the market. And so, yeah, we found coins, glass beads, loom weights. Age period, I'm thinking classical as well. Um, They had found like Iron Age finds in the same site before, but not in that particular trench. Um, But most of the stuff that we found was uh, classical and then also leading up to Byzantine too. Oh, so, yeah. yeah I'm really actually surprised just... they even found Iron Age artifacts prior to that. Because I know specifically in Greece, um, mm. the the transition, there was like literally the Dark Ages where like across the whole freaking country, there's hardly anything found. And the Iron Age only came right after that. Mm. And at least I think I'm correct. If anyone's listening and I'm wrong, I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've taken a classics class, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, so that's really interesting. And um, well, and like you're saying, you know, 
trenches typically, and mm. I could be wrong, trenches are typically almost like a survey sort of thing. So it's almost yeah. like you're, um, you're really going in with no idea what you're going to find, which is very different yes. than, um, for example, like a, um, like a plot that's already been started, like a full mm. area that's already been being peeled back layer by layer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh gosh. So we did have one day there, there were so many different like exciting things that happened. I don't, I don't even know where to start, but there was this one day where um, we were, so we'd done the pickaxe and we were going in with the trowels and the ground beneath us in our trench started to feel very, very hollow. So everything that we would kind of knock on, it was reverberating and we called down our, um, like one of the trench supervisors, uh, oh, what was her name? Um, Andronike, Andronike, she was such a lovely lady. And she was kind of on the edge of thinking it might be a burial. We all freaked out. Yeah, we absolutely freaked out. Um, And also what was making it sound hollow, I have to, you know, spoiler, it actually wasn't. It was really sad. It wasn't a burial. It was something completely different. Um, But what happened is a load of uh, roof tiles had collapsed into the same spot on top of each other. And there was an ancient Mycenaean burial practice in which children were buried underneath tiles. So they were buried and then tiles were layered on top of them. So we were at this stage where we couldn't quite decide whether it was a, a child's burial, which would just be so interesting. It would it, be, you know, beyond this earth to find something like that. Yeah. Um, or, you know, is this a poorly built house that's just completely collapsed? unfortunately it was the latter but it's at that kind of point where you know you really don't know what to expect in a trench as you were saying it's completely unexpected and it was really really exciting and I think at that point I was like oh wow I love this so much I love archaeology so much um but also what you were saying about like the dark ages and the iron ages I'm not quite sure in terms of like Greece but one of the things that I'm most interested in is the Bronze Age and like what the hell happened between yeah. like kind of um, like in the second millennium, right? What, mm-hmm. what happened? Because they are known as the Dark Ages. And um, one of the one of my favorite books I've ever read was the uh, it's called the Luwians and it's the missing link of the Aegean Bronze Age. And the I don't want to go off on a tangent without no, it's fine. we love books we love books on the podcast I'm okay. always here for book recommendations fantastic um so pretty much the Luians were allegedly this is very hypothetical by the way and the book is under quite a lot of criticism by academics um but the Luians were allegedly a a kind of collection of small to medium-sized um like petty states or kingdoms in southwestern Anatolia so like southwestern Turkey um geographically you're looking at kind of like bordering not bordering sorry like opposite roads so very close to Greece and um this kind of individual Louisian state or polity didn't identify as Greek and also didn't identify as like Hittite which is your uh, Anatolian civilization mm-hmm. the, you know the kind of most well-known one yeah. Um, and your Louisian territory was also where the um, Battle of Troy happened. Mm-hmm. And it's also mentioned a lot 
in reference to the sea peoples and I don't know if you've heard about the sea peoples yes that's actually one of the leading theories about the bronze age collapse yes yeah exactly so this book was kind of trying to suggest that it was the Luwians that um kind of formed this like confederation of the sea peoples went to Egypt left southwestern Turkey left it open to attack from the Mycenaeans they came in like completely destroyed and restructured the place and that's what happened in this like dark age and also the book suggests that a lot of um a lot of like greek archaeology happened when the ottoman empire was in decline and there was a lot of like prejudice racism against turkish people in which those histories weren't as popular as greek histories so in scholarship, there's also a lack of Anatolian archaeology. There's a I lack mean, it's of got Middle better. Eastern archaeology. Oh, yeah. Point blank, completely, period. completely. I mean, like Greek archaeology, obviously. And Cambridge is so bad for this as well. It's it's just like plumped center in any curriculum, like because they have a lot of the collection mm-hmm. uh, in the Fitzwilliam and also in the Museum of Classical Archaeology. But yeah, this this Louisian civilization is a, apparently the kind of missing link of of what on earth happened. Yeah. So, if you're interested, definitely yeah. have a look at that. <laughs> well, and when you say too, like it's under critique. I mean, I really kind of think any good scientific book article is going to go under critique because oh, you know that's how theories are solidified and formed. Mm. Is you have some data and you present it, and then you get the feedback and you work with. I mean, not everyone's going to like actually respond to the feedback but you know mm. if you're a good researcher well then you take the data that other people have found and you try to find you know the common ground or um any holes in your theory so that it is a stronger yeah. theory so when you say that yeah. I think as long as there's some form of evidence as long as it's not some person who's like literally never has no oh. relation I think no, that's no, you know no, that's definitely. what you want yeah completely completely and I think the way this book was also presented was very unique to me it was kind of in a holistic way in which they would um so the author is oh gosh what's his name i've had the book hang on eberhard zunger he's a german um natural scientist and i think he just became very very interested in this like missing link and just went ham on it um but what he did in his book is he kind of presented each chapter in three sections and it was current state of knowledge hypothesis and then he would um save the last section with uh kind of like quotes from other scholars Mm. that would either support or challenge his theories to like give the reader um the opportunity to like really kind of critique him so it's almost it was very it was a very confident way of like Mm -hmm. writing a theory I absolutely loved it I thought it was a great book I'd recommend it to anyone but very unique style Mm, it was really really unique it was very it was very sciencey I thought yeah I could see that he was a scientist from that mm-hmm. yeah. like because I think I don't I don't know as much about in archaeology because obviously I'm coming from an art history basis but in art history people really love to like gatekeep their theories mm. and if they sense that someone might have something that like pulls the carpet from beneath them mm-hmm. it's you know it it's it's a it's scary <laughs> yeah well they pretend like that that, that opinion doesn't exist mm. um and it's so sad too because it's like literally if you just listen <clears throat> and you adapt your theory to become more um let's say 
uh, factually accurate. And by factual, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about the, the past. I don't mean factual in that that's exactly what happened. I mean, factual yeah. and supported by some form of data. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely yeah but um yeah so that was just a, a something that I thought I'd say on the point of kind mm-hmm. of the like bronze age iron age um what's your what's your favorite time period oh that's a good question um it is it's a difficult one it's one that I've been grappling with for a while mm-hmm. as well I think my heart says one thing and then my mind says another thing and then I'm like uh what should um, I do <laughs> I'm blanking on what the area is called, but between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, what is that called? Mesopotamia. Jeez, there we go. Oh, um, nice. I think nice, Mesopotamia nice. in general is really cool because of uh, how revolutionary everything was that they were doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, how like they used the environment to their benefit, like between those mm. two rivers. You know, people, you know, say all you want. That wasn't a coincidence. You know, people... Mm-hmm had traveled I mean even if we just think right back like let's say 5,000 years people were migrating across the whole globe and Mm -hmm. that means that there was some selection in where they actually started to develop more uh, more advanced techniques building uh, farming etc and uh, I want to say some domesticated agricultural product came out of there I'm not going to say which one because I really don't remember um, and it's just so cool that you know the the uh, using such a fertile valley and yes, uh, producing definitely. such interesting things. But I also don't have a favorite because I really see myself as a global archaeologist. Um, I love which, that. You know, I love it too. But some people really don't like that. They're like, "Oh, you're just interested in too many things." And I'm like, I think there's a time and a place. You know, some people have Mm -hmm. niches. My niche just happens to be more things. That's actually why I want to work in museums is because I think that for me, that's the best way (laughs) to be able to continue my knowledge um, of global archaeology, but also be able to work on Mm -hmm. a lot of things and not feel limited to a niche. And I think I, I love that. And I agree with a lot of the things that you just said. And I think that working in a museum as someone who would like consider themselves as a global archaeologist or even to like boil it down, like with Mediterranean archaeology. Right. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to kind of translate that into a museum setting, you've got all of these different artifacts from all over the world. You need to find a way as a curator of synthesizing them into one show. How are you Mm going to do that? How are you going to find the links? That to me is like the best challenge. And I think, yeah, I think that's just that that's that's the way of doing it as well because yeah. you can still have a niche and you can still like you know mm-hmm. like study these these very specific like ingots or or this very specific tablet or something like that but if you can connect it to trade and migration and you know the translation of ideas and language and it's it just makes it so much better and it yeah. it makes it more real as well I think yeah and for me too I'm really interested in curating a space that uh moves well as in you can walk mm. in and it's very uh, you move through it in a sensible way I think some museums um and and this isn't um this isn't a critique more as a we can do better um mm. certain museums you know even the smithsonian natural history museum um if, don't please no <laughs> one to come attack me because i would like to work there but i would like yep. to help improve <laughs> things 
I just don't think the flow was great. Like there was a couple okay, places yeah. that bottlenecked at some of the most important information. And when it's a giant mm. museum like that, it's like, mm. you know, the information's still great, but we need to make a more open space for this specific, um, let's say, artifact that's everyone's yeah. going to look at. You know, uh, we want to make sure the Venus of Willendorf is in a place where um, there's not going to be a bottleneck being able to see it. Yeah, definitely. That's, do you know what as well? It's, um, I think it's the the study of phenomenology. I, f- I found it so fascinating. So it's the human kind of interaction with a museum space and how that affects, yeah, phenomenology. Look it up. Like, <laughs> look it up, please do. Yeah. It's very, it's like, it's a tiny little branch of studies, but um, it's really popular in museum studies as well. So it looks at how people interact with the space and how that affects their interpretation of the object. And I don't think until you're in the kind of like, unless you're obviously like you, like you're interested in that kind of uh, like, curation mindset it's not something that you you think is important until you realize it is and that's why people that's why people get you know I was about to say paid so much to be a curator but that's that's a lie (laughs) we don't need to let me just uh, say that confuse the children yeah that's a lie like if you want to be a curator you better love it You if you want to do it. anything in anthropology you better love it <laughs> oh crikey you really better um yeah but yeah that's that's why it's such a kind of time-consuming role because mm-hmm. you're really in a way you're manipulating how the public view history yeah and that's a that's a burden but that's mm-hmm. also a privilege and yeah, you've got to have a yeah you've got to be you've got to be very um I think you've got to be very kind of open to the like diversity of the public that you're gonna attract I think more and more like um like recently we've been seeing kind of museums uh trying to reflect their diverse audience or trying to tell new stories Mm -hmm. and find different like even I know a lot of um a lot of the work in the museum of uh classical archaeology in Cambridge they're doing on like queer histories in ancient Greece I know it's really great it's so great so they did this like trail through the museum which still has the original labels but then it has like an 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 alternative label which like tells another story about it which you probably wouldn't see otherwise I I thought that was fantastic it was really good yeah and I was so happy I was like thank god people are doing stuff like this If you haven't already listened, and you might have, and if you haven't, I'm not, like, judging, um, mm. Sophie Price and Maddie McAllister's episodes on this podcast, you have to listen mm-hmm. to, because they curate at the Tropical Museum of Queensland, and they've Ooh. been doing a lot of work to um, have Indigenous voices in in, mm-hmm. in the actual exhibits, as in, like, the um, the plaques, you know, they have the in, an actual, like, written up thing by someone who's Indigenous to the artifact that it's mm. the, Indigenous to the culture in which the artifact is from, excuse me, um, yeah. telling that side of the story, as well as the more, like, where it was found, um, any sort of uh, archaeological yeah, background yeah. that goes with it, and I thought that yeah. that reminds me of what you're saying. Of you know, Definitely. it doesn't have to be one or the other. Everything can exist in tandem. Exactly, I mean, exactly. Hell, like we can make museum placards a little bigger. You know, they don't need to be mm-hmm. tiny. Like, not <laughs> yeah. everyone's going to read them still, but it does enhance mm-hmm. the experience of the people that do read them. And I've spent so much time in so many different museums around the yeah. globe 
And, you know, actually one of my favorites is the um, archaeological museum in Greece in Athens. Ooh. Oh, I've never been. I've never been yeah. to Athens either. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I would say Athens as a whole, I wasn't like over the moon with, but mm. the archaeology is unparalleled. So <laughs> it was yeah, definitely course, cool to go course. there. Was it the artifacts in the museum or the museum space that made you like it the most? A bit of both. Um, mm -hmm. For example, so it's directly next to the Acropolis. You can see the Acropolis from wow. uh, the museum and they have it laid out in, mm. well, I, I don't think all of it. I'm trying to remember. At least one section is laid out in, in how it would have been on the Acropolis. So the reliefs. Oh, wow. The reliefs that used to line the top of yeah yeah is that right yeah the Parthenon yeah my poor brain is like is that right I was like I was like is it yeah the reliefs that lined the top of the Parthenon that had all these different scenes um are in the order around a rectangle that's the size of the Parthenon so when you walk around it's like you're getting somewhat of an experience of like it would have been to see it um, um, that's fantastic I'm such a big believer in like digital yeah. reconstruction I know that's obviously not that's physical uh -huh. but like physical or digital reconstructions yeah. of things that help people I mean there's a um there's an altar there's like a, an altar piece that was used um in oh god was it like an, like an oxen based ritual or something mm -hmm. like that I'm not quite sure it's a little bit later than the stuff that I look at but yeah. the display of it is absolutely fantastic so they've got this like altar piece um just kind of like on the floor on a stand and then behind it they've got a wall but on the wall they have um invited a local artist to paint the scene of that altarpiece in its original function so you can actually see like what it would have been used for and what it would have looked like when it wasn't like and also oh gosh one of the most fantastic things about this like artifact is that if you look inside you can still see evidence of like fire so you can see where it's been tarnished on the side of the, yeah, it's so fantastic. Just those little like details get you, but yeah, digital reconstructions, physical reconstructions through artwork, through like play, theater, anything like that, I think can really open up a museum space a lot. It I love it. It definitely can. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, and feel free if you don't want to answer this, you're under no obligation to, you mentioned um, when we go to Turkey, are you Turkish? I'm not Turkish actually no I'm um, I'm half Indian so my dad is Punjabi and my mom's just like British um but we so my my grandparents used to work abroad a lot they worked in like Egypt Tunisia and then they worked in Turkey for about a year and they absolutely fell in love with it and they ended up retiring there um, and this was yeah so this was when I was probably like two or three and um since then every single summer like we will just go out to turkey and stay there and it's a very it, it's not a small town that we go to but it's kind of like a quieter it's it's not as um rich as istanbul and i don't know if you've ever been to turkey or i haven't but my old roommate was turkish and she uh, ah. ha uh has you know lovely stories of visiting her family there Mm -hmm. it's just I Turkey is just my favorite country in the world I think it's beautiful it's mm -hmm. the most beautiful place I've ever been it's so rich so you can literally feel like you're in um like I don't know so you go from being 
kind of in the heart of the Ottoman Empire because you're in Istanbul and you're surrounded by all of these mosques and the palaces and Mm -hmm. then you go down to the coast and you're in ancient Lycia and you've got you know you've got the like Xanthos and Patara and the amphitheaters and Mm -hmm. so there's such a there's such a big range of history in Turkey but um yeah so we have our house pretty much like in the center of um ancient Telemessos which was um a part of like the Lycian League um and like in kind of like uh I don't know like the fifth century BCE um probably until like the Romans invaded um but yeah so I kind of like grew up around that history and just became absolutely fascinated by it yeah so that's 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 where it comes from thank you thank you Um, kind of switching gears, but it's been mm-hmm. on my mind since you mentioned ingots the other, it was like quite a while back. And I think you're mentioning it completely off topic, but it got me thinking mm-hmm. about something you told me, which is that, um, you might either you are working or you might get to work on the, Ulu, I'm going to say it wrong. Uluburun, uh, shipwreck. Oh, um, so gosh, I would love to say that I could like work, work on it, like work near it. I think it would probably be on an artifact that was found in it. Oh, that's what I figured. When I was oh, working on it, I mean, because I mean, I, I think they've excavated that whole thing by now. They really have. Yeah, they have. They've, they've, I think they found everything they could possibly find. Yeah. But actually, never say never. But yeah, um, yeah so the, I'm, I'm kind of in two minds at the moment because I had this like, I, I don't know if you, if you have the same experience, but every day I'll have like a new thesis title that will just like come to me in a dream or like, like I'll be sitting there like eating a sandwich. Honestly, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to write my dissertation about this. Or So I, I still need to, I need to actually enroll in my course first. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so I um, really wanted to look at a, a particular pendant. It's called the Astarte pendant which was found well so there was a particular one that was found in the Ulubaran shipwreck and it was from uh Israel I can't remember what site I should remember that it's really bad but it's now at the British Museum and um this particular pendant uh similar ones have been found like uh all over the Mediterranean in different sites they're usually from the Bronze Age they supposedly represent the um, Canaanite goddess of fertility. But what I would like to look at is how these symbols on these pendants have changed mm-hmm. throughout the like geographic region and what this could mean to the different cultures that are interacting with them every day. And also in a lot of these, um, a lot of these pendants, we know they were worn. So we also know that they traveled with people so I also wanted to look at the way in which we can connect, um, we can we can kind of discover trade routes through looking at material culture and finding visual similarities. So cool. thank you. And yeah. that's that's that is one idea. Um, mm-hmm. but the yeah, so the the Ulibran shipwreck, and then there's another one, it's in Cape Geladonia, uh, both in Turkey. But I think you would be really, really interested in these as like a global archaeologist because yeah. it's especially the Ulibran shipwreck. It's probably one of the most significant examples of how extensive trade was yeah. throughout the Mediterranean in the Bronze Age because they found this shipwreck, which was in southwestern Turkey, 
they found on it like a gold scarab with like the name of Nefertiti inscribed in it. They found um, jars from Israel. They found like blackwood from Africa. They found hippo tusks, uh, elephant tusks carved into ivory, like different kind of like ivory, um, like uh, jars and um, what's it called? Like goblets, like, you know, what they drink out of. Um, They found uh, pottery from Cyprus. They found Mm -hmm. beads from like the Baltic Sea. They found an axe that they thought was from Bulgaria as well. So, yeah. So this one boat has either been to different places that have really good trade connections or Mm -hmm. has itself traveled to all of these different places in its journey. And I think, you know, take us back like 50 (laughs) years, a lot of archaeologists think that or, or kind of thought that nation states or like Bronze Age nation states existed in very isolated circumstances and didn't have a lot of interaction. Right. And I think you still get archaeologists that really want to push that narrative today. Mm-hmm. But shipwrecks like this, case studies like this prove that that is just so wrong. Yeah. And people met and people spoke shared languages mm-hmm. and it really wasn't that dissimilar today it was just a lot slower because it yeah. had to be <laughs> yeah it was a lot slower I think one of the other yeah. big discoveries on that ship and I could be mixing it up with another shipwreck is that there was a ton of what the stuff that makes bronze which copper copper alloy like a copper yeah ca- copper alloy and yes. tin tin there we go yes tin, tin. yes there was yes. a ton of it on the ship which mm-hmm. was so unique because certain places in Europe, um, I believe it was tin that was the hard thing to come by in Europe. Um, mm. There were only certain natural places where it was occurring. Yes. And so to exactly. make all of the bronze that they were using for weapons and yes. for jewelry, they needed to get it from other places or at least yes. one of the ingredients to make bronze because bronze is not just naturally occurring. You, it's an alloy. Um, yeah so I think yeah I think that was a big discovery on that ship definitely yeah definitely and it also shows that um people had these uh like established networks that would really contribute to their entire economy so for example I, I I should know this but I'm not quite sure you're definitely right but I'm not sure where like the tin was coming from yeah um or where well actually I think so I think the boat was actually going to like a Mycenaean palace mm. and the theories are that it was either coming from Cyprus or like this kind of like Syro like Palestinian mm-hmm. area um but that's still kind of on the ropes they're not quite sure yeah. um but it shows that like people relied on also kind of like civilizations relied on other civilizations to boost their economy and it's you know the exact same today we do the exact same if there's poor relations between two countries like for example in England right now our energy like we have an energy crisis and the same thing would most likely have happened um back in the day if civilizations were in political turmoil or they were going through war these different um these different uh like nautical kind of like uh pathways would be cut off mm-hmm. and yeah. you wouldn't be able to uh trade with these countries anymore so you know they they i'd say individual um city states and individual civilizations weren't overly self-reliant they definitely relied on these on these cultures outside of them which i think is wonderful yeah, yeah. 
I think you and I could talk for ages about about this stuff yeah definitely I know (laughs) I get the sense I really do yeah um but yeah I have um a specific question for you and it's kind Mm. of something that I've started in this new season um I think we all need to you know be proud of our accomplishments so I'm curious uh what is a project or an instance or an event um that from your time in undergrad at Cambridge that you're really proud Mm. of um I think definitely is getting published um so round of applause thank you thank you thank you thank you um yeah I just didn't I I think I kind of had heard so many people because obviously in like academia you have um it's it's not easy to get published but I think it's you know if you want to kind of go into like a magazine or something like that it's a lot easier than trying to get into like an academic journal Mm -hmm. because people are so rigorous and Mm -hmm. I'm still I've I've had the like um the green light but I'm still going through editing processes now and the launch event is in November so like I that it's probably going to be even more leading up to that um but I I'm being published in a peer-reviewed journal. It's the Archaeological Review from Cambridge, and it's a biannual journal. Um, some people that have been like that have published in the journal before, Ian Hodder. I don't know if you know Ian Hodder. He's uh, like a processual so. archaeologist of the 1960s and 70s, and he kind of like pioneered the field. And it was a real like pinch me moment because I um, was actually doing my reading for the paper that I was writing and I referenced him and then I looked him up and I saw that he had like had his first paper published in the exact same journal that I was being published in I was like you are kidding me um and it was very exciting but so the paper that I am what I've written and it's been a long process I literally submitted my proposal last November um and I'm still editing it but the title of the paper is called Seeing Through an Imperial Lens, the Aesthetics of Photography in Ernst Crickle's 1892 Lycian Journal. And I'll break that down a little bit. So um, in 1892, there was an expedition that was led by an Austrian archaeologist called uh, Otto Bendorf. And he went to Lycia, which is in southwestern Turkey. And um, it was around the same time that the Harpy Monument and the Nereid Monument was shipped to the British Museum by um, Charles Fellows. So like big kind of um, European imperial rivalry going on at the time. Who could find the best artifact? Who could, you know, bring something home that their country would be proud of? It was there was a lot of imperial kind of like, um, like bolstering and encouragement at that time. And. I um, came across a book that was published about this specific photo journal that one of the team members of the 1892 expedition had uh, created during his time there. And it started off um, with just pictures from like the port in Trieste. It's where they left uh, in Austria to go on their expedition. And then it went all through Turkey um, and then it went like back through Greece and it was, it's almost like a, like a travel journal. And at the start I thought, okay, this is cool. Like, this is just nice to see someone else's, um, someone else's journey. And then I looked deeper into the images and what I found is that 
a lot of the so a lot of the images were just of kind of like landscapes but there was a couple which were um the austrian team positioned next to the like archaeological artifacts or monuments that they had quote unquote found in mm-hmm. lycia and alongside these pictures of the austrian archaeologists with the artifacts there were also images of the um ottoman because the turkey was ottoman empire at the time um of ottoman locals with the same artifacts and the tones in these two separate images were so different that it was very obvious that the photographer had tried to construct a um this kind of like image of of the like austrian explorer with this like grand kind of like imperial image and then on the other side you had the way in which he represented the ottoman locals it was very much in a like orientalizing manner Mm. in which they weren't ever named um Mm. they weren't ever presented as academics their only role as presented in this journal was as either a laborer so like an un like a quote-unquote unskilled worker and actually in the journal it said servant it referred to them as servants quite a lot um or it was someone who existed alongside the um the artifacts or the uh, ruins but had no real knowledge of what was going on so that was the image that was constructed through the photography and the captions of the journal and with a lot of the um i still think people i still think archaeologists do this to themselves today but you had images in which the austrians had their like one foot upon like a militus lion or they were standing at the top looking out to see as if you know they're about to embark on some miraculous adventure when in reality a lot of these objects had already been documented by the ottoman authorities and were already in um ottoman uh like collections or museums so so they were literally just stealing them (laughs) yeah exactly they really really were and the more i kind of delved into why these kind of images would have been created the more evident it became that the photography was actually a tool of um imperialism and specifically in relation to archaeology because i think also archaeology in the 18th and 19th century was a symbol of uh, European power mm-hmm. and superiority, especially over places like the Ottoman Empire, because you had countries such as you had Germany, you had Austria, you had Britain, France fighting over the right to own these objects. It happened. It, I mean, it still happens today. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not something that's isolated to the past, but. My paper's really looking into how these ideologies are represented through photography and how photography really is a medium in which people can manipulate the way you see history. And that's the crux of it. But it's a very specific case study, but I hope it's something that can be kind of applied to other things as well. So my mind's blown because it's almost like it's almost like a tool of propaganda. Mm, exactly it really really was it really was a tool of propaganda and it was it was interesting as well because this journal wouldn't have been published in the way in which you know uh we can like we we post something on instagram that we see today and like thousands of people see it it was quite a personal object Mm -hmm. and 
it would have it was it, it actually said who the um journal was shared with at the end mm. of the journal and it was the ministry it was officials from the ministry of culture in austria it was otto bendorf and it was the family and friends of the photographer ernst crickle and first of all i thought okay like should i read too much into the kind of like propagandistic qualities of this if it's only has a small reach but then again if you're dealing with very um elite circles those are the kind of people that are expecting and trying to like propagate these imperialistic ideologies in the first place so actually it really made sense to kind of pull these narratives out of something that was that probably would have been overlooked otherwise so Mm -hmm. that was definitely like 100% my proudest moment because I think it's like I think it's feeling like someone actually cares about what you're researching is Mm -hmm. really bloody lovely it is (laughs) and it really is because a lot of the time like I think archaeology you know we're we're a rare breed sometimes so it's nice to yeah yeah get it out there it's important to do projects like that that reconcile the past of archaeology and the wrongdoings you know we can't just Mm. turn a turn a blind eye and be like oh these things didn't happen the locals weren't treated horribly and although I don't really know much about the Ottoman Empire like regardless of whether they were quote-unquote um what's the what's a good way that I want to phrase you know I'm not I'm not even gonna uh regardless of the Ottoman Mm. Empire um they're they're, you know let's say their nationalistic intentions um those are their artifacts from their country and the people Mm -hmm. digging them up probably had a very direct if not um slightly removed connection to the people's cultures in which they're digging up because yeah that's indigenous archaeology definitely all over the world it really really does it really does it's it's a global thing and I think as well what it made me realize is that it's it's quite easy to not kind of recognize these very subconscious biases that sometimes we ourselves we 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 can be you know um we're not you know at fault most of the time because I Mm -hmm. think it happens very naturally and sometimes it's hard to escape the way you've been taught or your surroundings but um I think it's it's good to like study these things and try and analyze I don't know if I should even bring this up and feel free to edit this out Mm -hmm. I'd actually just like to ask you and like completely feel free to edit this out Mm -hmm. but it really made me think of do you know who um Co- uh, what's her name? Darnell Colleen called Colleen Darnell is. She's a um vintage Egyptologist. It's her Instagram handle, and oh. she's. Do you know who I'm talking about? I think I follow her. Let me okay, look. I actually I I I find her so fascinating, right? And one part of me is like, wow, she is the most fashionable lady I've ever seen in my life. She's amazing. Okay, so I I do on one side I really really like her. But then when I wrote this paper, I started thinking, I was like, okay, a large part of her aesthetic is colonial. It's yeah. massively, massively colonial. Yeah. And I, I, I thought, okay, is that, it's not, di- I don't feel like it's directly harming anybody. But mm-hmm. I feel there's something weird about it. There's just yeah. something really, really off about yeah. that. 
So that's actually something that I've talked about on the podcast before with my good friend, Mm -hmm. Katie Ibsen. Um, She likes to say, and I don't, I don't know Colleen's view. I do follow Colleen on Instagram. When you said that, I was like, it's ringing bells. Mm -hmm. Um, Vintage fashion, not values. And it's something that Katie is a big promoter of. Um, Well, she's definitely not to the extent in her vintage fashion as uh, this person that we're discussing. But she says that it's very important to her to separate the two. Mm. And so I think, you know, from that example, I think that there is um, in certain communities, not all, you know, um, there Mm -hmm. is quite a bit of discussion of vintage fashion, not values. However, looking over this particular person's Instagram, I think, uh, that would be a better question to directly ask her but yeah. also if anyone just heard a ding sorry my phone um turn <laughs> off do not disturb um yeah I, mean, I, think I think it's uh it's an interesting it's an interesting one I think we need to be especially on social media especially mm. on social media we need to be very conscious about what we're posting um I I've evaluated things I've posted and I I think we need to really move away from glamorizing and romanticizing the past. I Mm. think she may be at fault of presenting a romantic ideal of the past intentionally Mm. or unintentionally. And I think, I think that's, that's the issue. I even saw someone bringing that up about, you know, when people have 1920s parties, it's like, Mm. well, you know, the 1920s was a very uh, bad time for, let's say, um, people of color, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's important to kind of teeter that line Mm. of you're wearing a costume or you're wearing a fun outfit, but you're not glamorizing and romanticizing this past I mean, yeah, I I think it's something that I don't even, I was so interested to bring it up because I don't even really know where I stand on that, to yeah. be honest. I, I genuinely don't know. I'd have to think about it because I love fashion so mm-hmm. much. Like I don't, I don't look like it right now. I've got to be honest. I'm, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the evening. It's fine. It will pass. But um, I really love fashion and I love mm-hmm. vintage fashion a lot. And I love going vintage clothes shopping. And my probably my favorite. Yeah, I absolutely love it. It's my favorite thing. Um, and like my favorite kind of like fashion time period is the 1920s, like mm-hmm. New York flappers. Yep. I absolutely love it. I have quite I have quite a few things that I've consciously booked because I'm like, oh my god, I look like a flapper right now. This is great. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I don't I don't know. I, I don't sometimes I'm like okay am I over analyzing something when I could be redirecting my attention to something that will actually matter a bit more do you know yeah. what I mean no yeah. I do and I think for like let's take that example I think as long as you're saying I love 1920s fashion and fashion mm. designers I think that's what matters I think it's the Definitely. people that post and are like oh or not post or even just say like Oh, I wish I lived in the twenties. Like I'm, mm. and I'm not saying I, when I was a lot younger, I'm guilty of that. I'm talking about people oh, our age who, you know, yeah. have had the education that we've been blessed enough mm-hmm. to have. And that should be beyond that style of thought. You know, yeah. I think, yeah. I think there's a difference. I think being able to appreciate the fashion of the past and the designers and the creativity, you know, the twenties was really revolutionary when it comes to fashion. There's no shape. Oh, completely. It's, no. Um, it's sexy, it's, but it's, it's not skin it's tight. So, it's so yes. different. 
but that's what makes it sexy yeah think, no it is, is. That it's just so that silhouette is so different it's, yeah it's loose fitting I love it yeah, yeah. I really so do I think my stance would be as long as you're emphasizing what it is that you like mm-hmm. the styles the design and not uh like we were saying romanticizing it and being like oh the great, you know, the great Gatsby movie makes me want to live in the 20s. You know, things like yeah. that. I think yeah. that's where it crosses into, okay, well, you know, mm. uh, that's maybe not the best thing. Especially, again, you can have whatever thought you want in private. But on social media, yeah. we need to really need to be, um, especially, like I said, as two educated women, we're very lucky to have mm-hmm. learned the things we've learned to mm. um, hopefully kind of set the tone for others. Definitely. I mean, that makes it sound yeah. like we're important, yeah. but I don't mean it that way. I think I think it happens in a very kind of like like microcosmic level because <laughs> I've learned a lot of my kind of like behavior from um, things that I see on social media mm-hmm. because sure. we grow up like even even people that I follow in my town or like people that I know have done archaeology before me at the same university like I'll sit there and I'll be like okay let me see what they've done. Like, mm-hmm. And that that can actually have quite a snowball effect. So yeah, I, I really agree with you. I think I think social media is such a powerful place. I think it's a great place. First it of is. I really do because yeah. you know I wouldn't have met you without it. So yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's and that's fantastic. But it also it's it yeah it's finding because the line. it's powerful. It's it's finding yeah. the line one hundred percent. I feel yeah. the same way with human remains and social media. Oh yes, I. I... <laughs> I go back and forth um, every mm-hmm. year as I develop as a person and as a scholar. I think in my opinion, and you know, again, mm-hmm. this is my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think posting pictures of teaching collections are okay because mm. tons of students are seeing them anyway. And I don't think it's the worst thing ever to have a promotional photo of you working with remains that yeah. thousands of students are seeing anyway. However, yeah. there's a couple of accounts I follow that are posting every single grave they're excavating. And I'm like, mm. I just mm. don't think that's ethical. Because I know when I did field school, they specifically said, you cannot post pictures post of pictures the of graves. It. Yeah, yeah. I'd expect that. Simple as that. I expect that, yeah. Definitely. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if I heard that either. So I think it's, you know, I think specifically the accounts I'm talking about are uh, <laughs> perhaps the person is running the site. So I suppose they set the mm. rules. But I think, especially when we're talking about pictures of graves, aka the bones mm. are still in their final resting place. Yeah. To me, yeah. that's very disrespectful. Yeah. Now, no, I completely agree with you. Now, is someone at fault for <clears throat> posting that, not understanding? For example, they get excited and it's their first field school and they really want to post a picture. No, I don't think. I think it's a learning process. I think you mm-hmm. need to have someone who explains to you why it's disrespectful but specifically um certain accounts on social media I've kind of recently been like you know maybe someone I want to invite on the podcast and then I'm like really you'd be posting pictures of skeletal (laughs) remains every other day like that's just not the vibe Mm -hmm. of respect that we're going for um Mm -hmm. I just I I completely agree with you as well I think there's a time and place yeah completely and I think as well um as you said, there's a difference between posting a picture of human remains that are still intact in the grave that they were originally buried in. And then obviously, if it's in a lab, and it's like one bone, if it's like a, yeah, I can imagine. I feel like we've both had very chaotic days. Yeah. I've had a chaotic two months. 
Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's these new beginnings. Oh, it really is. It is. New beginnings, postgraduate life. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, what are you most looking yes. forward to at UCL or just living in London in general? Ooh. Oh, mm. so as much as like, I, f- I feel like I always have to give a disclaimer about t- when, like, when I talk about the British Museum because there are problems with the British Museum. Saying that, I am really excited to be close to that place and to work in its collections because it really does have such a fantastic collection. Um, Also, I'm excited to be around the academics that work in the British Museum because that would be, you know, you said the Smithsonian is like your dream place to work, right? Mine's the British Museum. So it's, I'm, I'm feel lucky to be that close to it. And a lot of the like course material is, held um at the institution and also we have like guest lecturers from the British Museum as well Mm -hmm. so that's definitely like one of the biggest things I'm looking forward to also I'm I'm looking forward to formally studying archaeology because I actually haven't really done that before I've just done art history which I took so my modules were so far removed from like what I'm now interested in I so my final year I took my first module in digitally it was amazing though digitally reconstructing renaissance florence um yeah yeah so that was my that and it was fantastic it was led by dr donald cooper he um works uh like in tangent with the fitzwilliam museum in cambridge they did a whole exhibition about it where they also invited like David Hockney to come and contribute and it was brilliant. And then I also took a course um, on the art of the Islamic world from the prophet to 1500s by Dr. Vivek Gupta. He is absolutely amazing. He, um, oh, where, where did he teach before? I want to say Stanford, but I feel like that's wrong. But he, um, he's a, yeah, a great academic Um and that was actually that course is what really got me thinking about like global links and trade links and migration there's also a really fantastic article that I think you would like it's about 13th century Sicily so it's very kind of removed but the like um the methodology of it is fantastic it's called pathways of portability and it's by Eva Hoffman and what it does is it takes this one object it's a it's a uh, royal mantle that belonged to uh, Roger the second of Sicily in the 13th century and it's um it has connections to like the Islamic world it has connections to Italy it has to, connections to France and pretty much what she says is that um there is no fixed meaning in one object and meaning changes like when an object travels every new hand that an object falls in the meaning will change so you can't assign one meaning to an object and I just that just like revolutionized my way of thinking about material culture and so it it kind of was very formative but yeah I'm excited to apply that to archaeology at UCL to go back to your question yeah (laughs) yeah no that's so exciting um I'm excited for you know your new journey I love I get to talk to so many people that are kind of in the same stage Mm -hmm. of their career as I am it's Mm -hmm. you know it's a time something that we were talking about beforehand that I'm just gonna say to everyone because I feel like it's relevant um 
don't set too high of expectations for yourself because transitions are transitions and you know Mm. whatever the adjustment may be even if it's not school maybe you've adjusted to school just fine um Mm -hmm. living in a new place um living with roommates um really anything you know give yourself the grace for that adjustment period because Mm. I struggle with that I'm getting better at it I've already had quite a bit better of a week than my first week I'm Um, so glad yeah I just think we need to be um give ourselves grace and time Mm. because empathy as well (laughs) empathy yeah transitions they don't happen in the snap of a finger just because Mm. you move somewhere doesn't mean um it's an instant click even if it is an instant click it doesn't mean it's going to be easy you'll have a maybe you'll have car troubles like me (laughs) I completely I completely completely agree with you because I think like a lot of change and this sounds the exact same for you I'm sure you agree but a lot of change has occurred around like me starting or beginning to start the postgraduate degree so like moving uh moving city um having to deal with like um private rent which I didn't have to do at university and having to deal with bills and stuff like that having to get a new part-time job and Mm -hmm. then meeting new people and just a very different kind of lifestyle Mm -hmm. and I think to be completely like real with you what happened is that I found myself getting a lot more stressed about like very simple things Mm -hmm. and I couldn't understand why and I was like why am I so why is this getting on my nerves like usually I wouldn't feel stressed about something like this and it's because there's so much upheaval that's going on around me that I have this like tendency to want to control things and micromanage things because everything's changing around you right that right yeah 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 I feel that (laughs) yes yes and I think it's so common I mean me and my housemates talk about it all the time because we're literally the same person It's, it's very nice but um yeah, I think when when there's change going on around you, you will have the desire to absolutely like control everything in your life. And when things don't go wrong, it can be well, don't go wrong, don't go right. It can be really um, like painful and confusing and discombobulating. But what I've learned is it's just a, the human response to change. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um. I think that's a great a great note to end on thank you so yeah. much for talking with me and um for the listeners uh, it's quite late where t- where tara is so um yeah, i, mean, I want to i want to say <laughs> yeah i want to say a big thank you to you for making this work um you know between oh, our our nice. two schedules it, it can be hard to you know find a time mm-hmm. but um it was lovely to chat with you no thank you so much for having me on like I'm really really excited to be here because yeah. as you mentioned at the start I listened to the podcast and it just it feels great to be on it um yeah, yeah really exciting and yeah this is not LA it's fine but um this was completely worth it anyway <laughs> so thank you so much yeah. really enjoyed talking mm-hmm.